everybody has trauma. So being able to work through that has been so huge for my golf game, funnily enough, because I'm a person before I'm a golfer. Of course. Being able to feel those roots of trauma. I actually experienced this with Andrew, my boyfriend, where I felt the roots of my trauma being ripped from my toenails and being released and set free and being okay with saying, this is what I went through. This is the life that I've led. There's no judgment. There's no anger, no bitterness. This is something that has happened. Welcome to the Bod Golf Podcast, where I speak with the entrepreneurs, the influencers, the disruptors, and the innovators who are shaping the future of golf. And today, my guest is someone that I really think she embraces all four of those, like fills all four of those buckets. And on the podcast, there are times when I try to curate episodes where I've met someone and where I've seen what they're doing and and it'll take me a year to kind of connect with that person. But other times it's just spontaneous. And this one definitely falls in that serendipitous, right place at the right time, who I met this lovely lady at the CPKC Open, the Women's Open in Vancouver, where I live. So the Canadian Open for the LPGA Tour. And that is Christina Kim, who has been on the tour. I think I'll have her say this. I think now she's been on the longest standing since 2001, but we'll get to that in a minute here. But I met Christina, followed her around for the final two rounds after she made the cut by one stroke. She didn't think she was going to. And I ended up meeting her and we had a conversation afterwards. And she's been running all over the globe here, covering in the Solheim Cup and other things. And now she's at home. So she has some time to be on the Mod Golf Podcast. And she joins us here today. Christina, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Colin, hi. It's lovely to finally be able to reconnect with you. I we we met back in in August, like you had said, and we have been bouncing back and forth. I've I've felt so bad because it's been like time is an illusion and I felt so bad. So hearing that sometimes it may take a year for you to get a guest makes me feel a little bit less bad about giving you, gosh, it's been what, eight weeks or so since we've met. Well, you do have a full-time job playing professional golf and kind of running around the world. So I, you know, I can't really be too hard on you here. And I, I know now <laughs> that you're at home for a little bit, a bit of your, your off season now. So I want to start with this. I always ask this icebreaker question for some people that don't play that much golf or anybody that I talk to on the podcast. I'm quite intrigued with you since you are a touring professional. And this question goes as such. When was the first time you ever picked up a golf club? That power of invitation. Who invited you? Who, who gave you that first opportunity to put a club in your hand? Well, I was just shy of 12. I was in my backyard. I was with my older brother and my older sister. And our father came to the backyard. He had picked up the game, I think a couple years prior to us picking up the game. And he said, here's this stick ended up being a golf club. And do you remember those hundred centimeter by like 80 centimeter mat with a little metal hook with a golf ball attached to a string? I do remember those. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So he had one of those set up in the backyard and he said, this is how you hold a golf club. You're going to swing back and forth. So almost ambidextrously. So you're going to take the backswing, you're going to go into follow through and then with it back around into the backswing, you weren't going to hold your finish and reset up to the ball. You're just going to go back and forth and back and forth 500 times a day, each of you. Right. And so that was my introduction to the game. I was just like, okay, I was told to do something. 
I'm a kid, I will do it. And there was also that little competitive component to it because my brother and sister and I would watch each other be like, that was 498. You've got two more swings. <laughs> and so after about a month of doing that, my dad said, there's a point to all of this, took us to the driving range and said, so the ball's not always attached to a string. In fact, it's never supposed to be attached to a string. You hit this, you start above ground, you hit this as far away from you as you can, as straight as you can, hit it on the grass, and then you're going to hit it onto this other part of the golf course. And so you're going to start above ground, hit it on the ground, finish underground, and you try and do that in as few reps as possible. Wow. So, uh, so obviously your dad had must have had fairly good understanding of a swing sequence because I know when I first started to play, I'm a couple years older than you, so there was definitely no YouTube at the time. There was really no instructions. I didn't grow up in a golf family at all. For many years, I could not aim far enough left because my slice was so bad. I played a lot of baseball, but uh, yes, definitely casting the club. So obviously he was ingraining good swing practices in muscle memory as compared to me with thousands of swings that I've had to eradicate slowly and painfully over years to actually get a half decent swing. So obviously he, he knew what he was doing, right? To make sure that you were swinging the club properly those 500 times a day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's been keeping an eye on my swing ever since day one. And my dad actually caddied for me my first three and a half years on the LPJ tour. He was there on the bag for my first tour win. He was on the bag for my first Solheim Cup, my first Solheim Cup point, which did happen to fall that same week. It, it's a really, really special relationship that the farther away I get from it, it actually becomes more and more special. Wow. I, I bet it does. I bet it does. So... Let's fast forward or just kind of keep going here in the chronological journey of your golf career then. Did you then play in high school? What took you to the next level then as far as uh, as playing? And then what lit up inside of you that you had a passion for the game rather than getting burnt out and going, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else or anything but golf. So, so tell us about that. I'm the youngest of three. My sister and my brother were uh, about three and four years older than I am. And my father dedicated more of his time to them because he had aspirations. Oh, they could go to college on golf scholarships and this and that. And Tina's still young. So Tina's got a little bit of time. And then you've got poor little Tina here who's like, I'm the baby. I'm accustomed to all of the attention. <laughs> what is happening? And I noticed that he was paying more attention to my brother and sister because they were stronger. They were hitting the ball farther. And I said, okay, so I have to be able to beat them. And then maybe I'll get the attention that I'm used to. Like, obviously he's my father. He's still going to be paying attention to me. It's just a slightly different level of concern or a slightly different level of how much attention he's, he is willing to pay. Because again, he was trying to get them to go off to college. And so I just started beating balls. And was like, okay, I'm going to be competitive against the prizes. My dad's attention again, the youngest child, you never can get enough. So because I was not pushed to the same degree, my brother and sister were, I developed a love for the game myself. And I was like, mm. oh, this is really cool. Like I can hit cuts. I can hit draws. I can hit all nine shots. We'll talk about putting some other day because I'm still just a kid that just likes whacking balls. So I was able to cultivate a love for the game on my own. And so by the time my dad rolled around and saw what I was doing, I was like, nah, dude, we good. I got this. Mm -hmm. Please tell me what on earth I'm doing. But I, I've been able to cultivate a love for the game myself. And so, yes, I did play junior golf and I, I played in high school. When I was competing in tournaments, probably right around the time I was about 14 or so, my father used to take me to my tournaments and he would traipse through the trees with a tripod and camcorder. Uh-huh. 
and he would record my tournaments and we would have to go back home and watch my tournament rounds afterwards, sort of like football or baseball or what have you, you know, looking at form, looking at decision-making this, that, whatever. It was mortifying, but (laughs) I just sort of became accustomed to having to witness what it was that I was doing later on. And so anytime the LPGA tour came on, my brain had two thoughts. One, dad, our lines got crossed with someone else's feed. And two, oh my goodness, are you going to still be recording me when I'm as old as those ladies? Because again, (laughs) I'm a teenager at this point. Right. And so it wasn't until after I had already started competing on the, what's now the Epson tour. Back then it was called the Futures tour, which is the women's equivalent of the Corn Ferry tour. I'd spent half a season as an amateur playing, was playing really well out there and played in my first U.S. Women's Open. It was at Pine Needles in the Pinehurst region, was the youngest player to make the cut that week, third low amateur. And my dad, you know, we're walking off and he's like, you know, you would have made like 12 grand this week. And I was like, of money? (laughs) And he was like, yes, dummy, of money. And I was like, but why? Why would they pay me to do something I love? Work is not supposed to be enjoyable. That's what all the tropes say. Yep. So when I was 17 and you told me that, I said, well, okay, now I know what I want to do. I grew up in the in the Bay Area. So I basically grew up between Pebble Beach and Olympic Club. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Stanford because it's right there. And I am going to go to class and I am going to go and hit balls after class every single day. I, I was so naive. And so my dad was like, well, you know, you go to college because you figure out what you want to do with your life. And so after that U.S. Women's Open, I was like, well, now I know I want to turn pro. I had already shot 62 as as a 17 year old kid that summer. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And so after some thought and talks with my folks who were both educators back in Korea before they emigrated to the United States, they were like, all right, let's do it. So at 17 years old, I went to Q school for the Futures Tour back then. I I finished as medalist. And I remember on my 18th birthday, we were told, you know, you have to be 18 when you turn pro. And this was, again, like we map quested stuff when we were feeling splurgy. Otherwise, it was like the (laughs) Rand McNally Atlas that we were traveling around, driving around in. And we're like, oh, whoa, this must be a big city. Decatur, Illinois must be a big city because it has its own little picture of the general highways and the roadways and everything. So we didn't know you could petition. Didn't really matter anyway. My 18th birthday rolls around. It's the first week of the season. It's a Wednesday. And I just kind of look at my dad and I'm like, oh gosh, they say you're supposed to declare yourself a professional before you turn pro. Like, you know, you see anytime you look at the USGA applications, whatever, you must declare yourself a professional. So I like threw my hands up in the air in the middle of the golf course in Lakeland, Florida. I said, I declare that I'm a professional. I was like, is that what we're supposed to do? And my dad and I like gave each other a high five and was like, okay, I guess we're a professional now. Did I do it? So technically, I don't, I mean, I'm sure he, on the back end, he, he had everything sorted out, but I'm like, gosh, I wonder if I ever, did I ever go through all the right protocols to actually have turned professional? <laughs> well, I like the way that you did it by, but yeah, publicly announcing it like that is, is pretty amazing. Well, I, of all the good stuff you just put out there, uh, we do have many things in common. I'm also the, uh, the baby of the family. I'm the youngest of three kids. So I, I certainly uh, like the attention also. So I get you. <laughs> and also like you, I'm able to hit all nine shots also, but the downside is, as a 14 handicap, I can't actually choose which one of those nine I want to shoot at what time. I can hit them all, but I don't have control over them like you do. So we differ a little bit. That's maybe why you do this for a living. And I'm probably ranked number 18 million in the world, but that's okay. That's okay. It's fine. Okay. So 
All right. So now we're getting to the point. You've just declared yourself pro to the world, everyone at the first tee. So tell us about that first year. That's 2001, is it not, that you you turned pro? 2002 was actually the, the year I turned pro. 2001 was when I did play on the Futures Tour, but again, as an amateur for half a season. Right. I have worked on myself a lot to the point where I am very good at staying present. I used to always overthink and that was, you know, I used to always delve into the past, look too far ahead into the future. And that is one thing that really would oftentimes lead me into depressive episodes because that is something that I do. I don't say I struggle with it. It's just, it's a part of me. Every morning it's, it's there and it's like, oh, hey, little buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Good to see you. We're going to focus on, on on these things right now instead. So I've done a very good job of sort of clearing the slate. I only have a few core memories of my time on the Futures Tour. I'm sure if I actually sat and thought about it, I could recall quite a lot. I elect not to live my life that way anymore. I mean, we drove everywhere. Like I didn't take my first flight until I think it was maybe May of my rookie year on the LPGA tour. We had this Dodge conversion van that we drove around everywhere. It had a five CD changer in it. And I remember the three albums that I had, it was a six CD changer, excuse me. My father had three, I had three. I had Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory, Godsmack's debut album, and it was the Incubus Fungus Among Us. No, it was just after Fungus Among Us album. This is on your head. This is on heavy rotation. You should know this. Come on. There's only three. I should know. Oh, yeah, but I have I, I, I have so many. I love Incubus. So let, give me just honestly, give me just a sec. And then you're going to have to recite your dad's playlist, too. You got you to gotta know what three he had on there, too. They were old people Korean ballads. <laughs> That's all I know. Make that, Yourself. It was the Make Yourself album. Sorry. There we go. Yeah, so it was those three albums. Those were on heavy rotation. So anytime I'm driving and any song comes on from any of those three albums, it warps, it just sends me straight back to that first year as a professional. Just chest high grass everywhere we went, driving, just cruising down the highway, going from tournament to tournament. and, And everything was just a new adventure. Wow. Everything was a new adventure. And 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 I've started to try and live my life like that again in the last year or so. And it's been just so much fun. Wow. So you've been, so if my math is correct here, it is 2023, 2001. So you've been on the LPGA tour for 22 years. Yes. Is that, and I haven't done the the background on this and I'm sure you may know. So is, what is the average length of a career on the LPGA tour and what woman has set the record or do you have the record? I, I, I don't know. I'm curious. I know that I don't have the record because Dame Laura Davies still will compete at least a couple of times a year. Okay. And she, I want to say she turned pro back in the 80s or in the 90s. I want to say it was in the 80s. I honestly don't know. I don't personally pay attention to things like that because I'm not really one to ever compare myself to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, I will celebrate whenever someone does something that is monumentous and and heroic and record-breaking or whatever, but I don't look at things and say, that's something that I want to beat. I just want to go about, and I know that I'm doing the right thing as long as I'm enjoying myself. Again, just really focusing on and staying in the present has been monumentous for for my mental health. And I will have to say, when I first saw you, you staying in the present, and just want to tell this story, that I saw you 
in the parking lot afterwards. You were in the rental car. It was after the second round. I think you were at that time still one shot outside of the cut line. Mm -hmm. So you thought you were probably not going to make the cut. Of course, it moved back. I was one shot. I think I was on the cut line at that point, to be honest. But I figured that people were going to play better because I played in the morning on Friday. You thought it was going to move the other way, not stay where it did. So you're on the bubble there. And talk about bubble. I was walking over to where the uh, the shuttle bus was for the media and you had stopped and there was someone I guess that you knew and another friend of theirs and you offered them both rides and you're helping them put their stuff in their vehicle and asking them where they need to be dropped off and just your give first attitude. And I knew who you were before and through watching you on television and knowing a little bit of your story. I just was so impressed as like, once you made the cut, it's like, I'm going to follow you around tomorrow because I, I love the vibe. I love the energy here. And you did not disappoint. You were out there and I remember, and I did a couple of uh, Instagram reels for this covering you that you bogeyed four in a row and you're still thanking fans and you're joking with your caddy and cracking jokes and you stuck with it. And then next thing you know, you birdie three out of the next four and you're right back in it. So, so this even keeled approach, I'm assuming that wasn't how you were all through your career when you were struggling with certain things when you were having a bad time in the course. No, I just met those two guys like an hour earlier. <laughs> they were friends of my caddies. That's even better. So. <laughs> even better. Love it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the gentleman that was caddying for me, Jeff Mulberry, this is my battle partner. So I absolutely trust him implicitly. And we were actually about, we were heading out to go get drinks. Um, when when, there you, when go. you, uh, where were we going? We were going to their golf course about 10 minutes away. Oh my gosh, my brain's not working. Thank you for, for recognizing that. But yeah, I would have been a lot more volatile with my emotions for a lot of my life. You know, mm -hmm. it was highs were so high and lows were so low. And honestly, even since I saw you in August over at Shaughnessy, I've been focusing on just being on a high, less even keel, just mm -hmm. being more on a high. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the level of joy that I've allowed myself to experience. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm in a relationship right now and this is it for me. Like they really say, when you know, you know, and this is his name's Andrew and this is the one and being able to be with someone that really gives you the space to experience and go through your traumas and hold your hand and say that you're safe and that what you're doing, you're, you're going to be okay. It gives you strength that you didn't even realize you had within yourself. So there are a lot of things that have just really sort of transpired in the last couple of months that have really just put me at a high. And with the caveat of knowing that I have some good coping mechanisms now in terms of how I can deal with my mental health when things do look like they can start to decline, being able to sort of, you know, scale back and go at like a 30,000 foot view of everything, trying to make sure I don't lose the forest for the trees, making sure that on really bad days, and it's something that I practiced for years is really focus on the small victories. You know, you have a mental checklist. Did you get out of bed? Mm -hmm. And on bad days, you're like, well, yeah, but it took me three hours. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa. we're looking at yes and no answers. Did you get out of bed? Yes. Did you brush your teeth? Yes. Did you not poop the bed? <laughs> Whatever little victory it is you have to find. Yeah. You know, you just sort of sit there and you start checking all of these little boxes. And before you know it, your day goes from something that you think was awful to okay. And then an okay day turns into a decent day. Decent day turns into a pretty good day. Pretty good days turn into great days. And before you know it, you've had a great month. Yeah. I, I have some coping mechanisms in, in, in that way. And just also understanding we've all been through a lot in our own ways. 
the worst that you've been through just by virtue of say me speaking right now, you call and listening to this or the people that are listening to this right now, the worst that you've been through by virtue of those things of me talking, you listening, the viewers listening, and we're still here. So that gives me strength. Mm. But yeah, it's, I, I don't know. Life is beautiful and agonizing and just unexpected, something that you cannot have control over. And when you relinquish that control is when you can take control of yourself as a human being. Oh, I love the way you put that. We are now going to take a short break to hear about our episode presenting partner, InRange. So what is InRange? Well, InRange is a radar-based ball tracking company that enhances the driving range experience by offering the most engaging gameplay and precise ball tracking on the market. InRange is the only driving range tracking business that truly offers something for every type of visitor. They have unparalleled practice software, which includes the world's first and only practice handicap, as well as golf games and courses for the more social player. They are also the only software in the world that offers a bay versus bay link-up feature, meaning large groups can play against one each other in teams right across the entire venue. To learn more about them, check out www.inrangegolf.com. You and I were speaking earlier before we started recording and we are connected through mental health struggles. I did share with you that we sadly lost our 15-year-old son, Clive, to suicide right at the beginning of COVID, so three years ago now. And the work that we do supporting youth mental health through the charity called Jack.org, that is a platform for youth mental health advocacy. The kids themselves are the ones that are the ambassadors and the advocates. And knowing almost 10 years ago, the struggles that you had, I'm sure those doesn't just happen overnight that was there, but then coming to that head and that, and that inflection point with you where thankfully you were surrounded by people and didn't make a terrible decision and are still with us here, smiling and adding joy to other people's lives, including my own here. So I know you struggle with that. And this is something I, I talk about on the podcast, but I haven't mentioned the loss of our son, I think only once in, in previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. But for everybody out there, that's what Christina is sharing with us today and the courage it takes to put that out there that you have for years to remove that stigma still around mental health for kids, for everybody, right? Absolutely. Uh, I know middle-aged and older men are really bad also as far as talking about your emotions, that old kind of stiff upper lip, mm-hmm. man up and all this nonsense. And we're having conversations now that it's okay not to be okay that we do need support at certain times, whether that's through therapy or whether we actually need removing the stigma around antidepressants and actually needing medication, maybe for all your life, maybe just on it and taper on and off it for a certain period of time. But there's still within our society, these stigmas that are attached that still need to be removed. I'm so happy that you're willing to share with us your journey and the situation that you've had to face and, and work through. Yeah, if there's anybody out there listening that and watching that that is struggling, both of us are here. Certainly, I will include uh, some resources in the show notes here today. Yes, because always reach out for help because we are all connected ultimately as human beings. I know COVID was so hard for people. We lost that connection that we've had for what, tens of thousands of years yeah. and had to reboot that. So for you to share what you still struggle with, it doesn't go away. It isn't like it's it's fixed with some magic pill or a couple of words and you're willing to put in the work and reach out for help, it sounds like, when you're not okay. You're not suffering in silence, which so many people still do. And I, I'm guilty of that in the past too. We're just internalizing it and thinking it's my own problem to solve or not wanting to inconvenience other people or whatever ridiculous rationale in my mind I come up with. And people want to help. It's one thing that makes us sad through what we do, through the charity work we do, 
celebrating Clive's life is he just lost his way of how connected and loved he is. And he just made a bad mm-hmm. decision on one day, right? And yeah. sadly, it happens hundreds of times a day across the country, right? Yes. And the fact that you're an advocate and are willing to talk about it is powerful. And I thank you for that. So with that, did you actually do any work intentionally? Do you ever talk about it, whether it's with kids or is this something that it's your own personal journey and it's what you do and the people that are immediately around? I know you do some foundation work and some charity work. So I'm just curious to see what type of connectivity you have and the work that you do off the course. Well, so I've got like five points that I want to hit going back to, to some of the beautiful things that you said, Colin. One, I'm going to kind of go backwards because there's a good chance I'm going to forget everything earlier that I wanted to say. But when you were talking about, you know, how we suffer in silence or we don't want to inconvenience someone, I have this conversation with people all the time. I have this conversation with some of the kids that I mentor and I have this conversation with adults as well. So if you were to sit there and think, okay, when when was there a time that I helped someone, um, say you, Colin, that you helped them, like a friend of yours that was going through something? And you help them solve a problem that they were having or you help them come to a solution that made you feel good to know that you you helped in, in that process. Right. Absolutely. When we shut down and we say we don't want to inconvenience someone because we're all we are all guilty of that as well. You're denying that other person the potential opportunity to feel what you felt when you helped someone solve a problem. Mm hmm not you specifically, when when someone is is able to ask for help. One, it is such a powerful feeling to know that someone trusts you enough that they're asking you for help. And secondly, they're gifting you the opportunity to feel good about yourself. And so that is something that I've had to constantly remind myself, whether it's talking with friends, talking with family, talking with my boyfriend. I am not going to deny someone that incredible feeling of accomplishment and success and just joy and peace and contentment when I help someone else because I've helped people my whole life. Mm-hmm. I don't ask for any accolades. I don't I don't even talk about it very much. It's just that's something that I do. It's that's just what I do. But I spent so long not asking for help for a very long period of my life. I denied people that opportunity to feel the joy that I felt when I did help someone. So that's one thing I want to touch on. And going back to what you're saying about people in general and and how there is still that stigma around mental health. It's a societal thing. And honestly, it's a generational thing. You you go back and you think about people that were around in the World War One, then the World War II generation, where a lot of us are just products of the way that we were raised. But I feel like the Gen X and now millennial and Gen Z generations, and I would say also the young boomers, so the ones that are near the cusp of boomers and and Gen X, we're the generations that want to change instead of saying, this is just how it's always been. We can sit here and say, that's not what we want anymore. That's not what we want for our future. We don't have to continue the cycle of suffering in silence. We do not have to sit there and say, I'm just being a wimp or whatever it is. We're the generations that want to have our children, the next generations, whomever it is, not have to deal with what we dealt with. And we're the we're the generations of change. And I think that that is a remarkable thing 
And I think it's wonderful. And, and, and all of the work that you've been doing is, is really going to change the world. And by that, even if you change one person's world, that means that you've changed the world. And I think that's incredible. So, so thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for um, recognizing how important it is to make sure that our young people know that when it's okay to not be okay, and it's also okay to want to ask for help, and it's okay to want something else. And so going back to that, for me, I used to always minimize it and say my attempt at an attempt at suicide, I'm just going to call it my attempt at suicide. There was a slight level of comedy to it because I was in the south of Spain. I was on the Mediterranean coast. I was in this beautiful medieval castle at a golf tournament where I had been flown over there and there was no cut and this and that. And it was all and I had a partner in the tournament. So I didn't even have to worry too much about what I was doing. It, it doesn't matter. It's just a thing that had been building up. I was physically not well. I was suffering through some injuries that I, I was putting off kind of a thing. And I was burnt out. Mm-hmm. I also had this perception around me of always being bubbly and always being the clown and being brash and, and gregarious and this and that, whatever, whatever. And it's like now... I sit there and say, yeah, those are all parts of me. I'm, I'm funny. And I don't care if nobody else believes it. I laugh at myself all the time. (laughs) But it was this like surmounting pressure where I was not feeling myself. I was not feeling well, but I wanted to maintain this image for other people's sake because I didn't want to concern other people. And again, I was denying people the opportunity to help me. And so I was just about to step off from the roof into the Mediterranean and just get washed away Mm. and just be done with it. I was done, I was tired. And then I remembered that I had the car keys and I couldn't let my teammate or my boyfriend at the time not find a ride home. That was honestly the one thing that kept me from jumping. Wow. Because if they had the keys, there's a very good possibility that I would have gone through with it. Mm. Don't know if it is or not, but that's just the way that my brain worked. And that night, my boyfriend at the time was like, something's not right. And I said, no, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. He said, no, you're not. It's okay. We can sit here in silence for three days. I'm not going to force you to say anything. Just know that I am here for you, though. And after a while, I just started breaking down and crying and saying something's not right. I just try to kill myself, this, that, whatever, whatever. And so I contacted the medical director of the LPGA at the time, Dr. Bruce Thomas, who sadly just passed away um, this last spring unexpectedly after a fairly routine surgery. That was really hard for me. He's a, he's a gentleman that saved my career twice and saved my life three times is the way that I say it. Wow. And so I called him from Spain and I said, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just tried killing myself. I don't know what's wrong with me. Those are words that I think people with mental health will oftentimes say to themselves and say to other people, I don't know what's wrong with me. And Dr. Thomas had worked with the uh, Washington Nationals, the the MLB team. He worked with some of the best orthopedic surgeons in the world. And he's like, I've worked with athletes for decades. He was one of the pioneers of sports medicine. And he said, I'm just going to tell you, I'm so sorry that you almost killed yourself. I am so glad that you did not. I'm just going to tell you, clinically speaking, It's not a matter of what's wrong with you. Your brain has stopped producing serotonin at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. You've been on tour for eight years. You've never stopped. You're always on the go. You're always competing. You don't take time for yourself. Your brain has just stopped producing serotonin. And it's like your brain is a car. You ran out of fuel. So why don't we hit you up onto a tow truck 
and we'll take you to a petrol station. And however long it takes for this tow truck to get you to the petrol station and get you filled up, we will have you uh, start up on a small dose of some artificial serotonin. And then we'll fill your tank up mm-hmm. while you're on there. That way you'll get to feel some artificial serotonin. We can find out if your body can start producing it on its own at the same time. But this way, you don't have to rely on those tiny doses. The little car brain of yours, it's being towed. So you're going to be okay. And then we'll go and we'll see. I don't know. Maybe there's actually a, a hole in your fuel tank. And if that's the case, then maybe we're going to have to supplement for longer. Mm-hmm. But if not, maybe it'll take you six months to get your fuel tank filled up. And then off you go running to the races. And now that is exactly what ended up happening. I was on a small dose of an antidepressant for six months. And then after that, I was like, you know, I'm good. I I feel it. I have my own joy now. I just have to make sure that I never let my brain's serotonin fuel tank ever get past half full. I don't wait for the fuel light to go off. Yeah. By virtue of just telling me on a physiological level, this is what has taken place. It took all emotion out of it for me. And for me, that was monumental because again, you're always going to think what is wrong with me. And it's not a matter of wrong. It's just, you ran out of gas, buddy. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Let's go call AAA. You know, I'm not sure if you guys have, is it double A in, in, in Canada or CAA? It is CAA. We got, we have all the A's. We're good. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll, we'll hook you up onto a tow truck yeah. and we'll go take you to a gas station and we'll fill you up and then you can go drive off. But hey, let's just make sure that, you know, we keep an eye on that fuel gauge from now on. And it was done in such a kind and gentle way. I stopped thinking something was wrong with me. It was just clinically speaking, this is what happened. And these are the series of events that took place. Now, whether that's something that it's because you're the CEO of a company, whether it's because you're in lower management, whether it's because you're bagging groceries or if you're in customer service and you're getting yelled at all the time. And, you know, so much of this North American culture is about the go, 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 go. No one ever gets a chance to breathe. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're just sitting there with your foot on the pedal, pedal to the metal, and you don't even get the chance to look and see where your fuel tank is at because you're too busy trying to make sure you're not hitting other cars that are also zooming you know, go on 130 kilometers an hour. It's one of those things that that was really a monumental thing for me, just being able to take away that emotional stigma for me and say, hey, buddy, it's okay. And knowing that this is something that is physiologically, this is actually the proper sequence of events. Preferably, we wouldn't wait until you're sitting on the side of the road with an empty tank. Right. That's again, also why the fuel tank goes off. We should have our own internal fuel tank lights that go off, but that's just the culture of that's the work culture that we all live in. So taking a few moments here and there, giving yourself a chance to breathe, showing yourself some kindness and some grace, relearning every single day, what it means to be patient. These are all ways that I've been able to live with my depression because I will sit there and say, Hey, little buddy, like you're, you're still here. That's okay. I'm not here to invalidate you. I'm not here to tell you that you're bad or you're this or you're that. Why don't you go curl over into the corner of my brain and just go take a nap, go take a nap. You must be tired too. Mm -hmm. You know, so showing myself kindness has been, been huge. And I've been working with a psychologist for the last eight months, which has been huge for me in so many ways. Just, I don't care who you are. You could have a quote unquote perfect life. You have childhood trauma. Everybody has trauma. So being able to work through that 
has been so huge for my golf game, funnily enough, because I'm a person before I'm a golfer. Of course. And being able to feel those roots of trauma. I actually experienced this with Andrew, my boyfriend, where I felt the roots of my trauma being ripped from my toenails. Wow. And being released and set free and being okay with saying, this is what I went through. This is the life that I've led. There's no judgment. There's no anger, no bitterness. This is something that has happened. And I I also talk about everything in life is about trying to get back to net zero. You're born and then you pass on. You're on this plane and then you're off. And in a lifetime, we have traumas and we have joys. Most of our traumas happen when we're younger, before we're 35, most of them. And so I feel like I'm at the point now where the trauma was in such a way that in order to get back to net zero, I have to have that same amount of joy Mm. in my life. And I am responsible for that joy. It's not just going to come to me. I have to find the joy, whether it's seeing the joy and watching the leaves change and the foliage around me from day to day, whether that means running around and finding like the perfect leaf to crunch on that's fallen on the ground or, you know, still finding joy, trying to create that dragon breath on a really cold morning. Right. The small moments, those are the things that encapsulate and make up a life. Wow. It sounds like you're really embracing your personal journey and the human experience because yeah, life is... Life is beautiful, but life is also hard. Life is freaking hard. Life is hard as heck. You know, the line from Hamilton there with Washington saying, dying is easy, living is hard. And it is it is so true. Absolutely. Right? You know, and that is part of the journey that we're all on. And, and I, I love what you talk about as far as that self-reflection and, and self-acceptance and self-love and the kindness there. And I've got two post-its up here right over my monitor here and the first one says slow down because when I get excited I hear myself I talk way too fast so I need to Mm -hmm. slow down and the other one that touches on what you had mentioned there Christina and it says be generous and kind to yourself and I can really feel you embrace and embody that now in your life yeah I am a generous and kind and gentle person I'm loud I'm funny this that at my core, I'm, I'm gentle and I am kind. I'm not the norm. And so nobody should ever feel that they are owed or that they should expect kindness from someone else. I've received death threats going back as far as like 2009, like throughout my career. I'm still here, so whatever. So I've always had the mindset that regardless of even if everyone on the planet hated me, I need to have enough love for myself. Mm. And there's still plenty of self-loathing too, don't get me wrong. But I still need to have enough love for myself that I can offset that to get me again back to that net zero. And that comes from resilience and belief in oneself. And also part of it was because of my childhood traumas, being hyper-independent. And now I don't have to be that hyper-independent. I don't have to be any of these things. They, They are things that I get to choose to be if I want to. But these aren't musts. These aren't needs. The only needs that I have are food, shelter, water, clothes, and golf. Those are the only needs that I have. A good playlist too, right? A good playlist. I got plenty of voices in my head. I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a need. That is an absolute want. That is an absolute want for me. (laughs) Fair fair enough. So I want to ask you this as we, we finish up. I can keep going for hours with you here. This I just love the conversation and just feel like we've known each other for a, a long time, even though we just barely got to know each other here. And we are going to jump on a Zoom call for a video call because we have our Mod Golf YouTube channel and you and I are going to have a slightly different conversation there. So I do encourage all of our listeners to go over to our YouTube channel also and uh, become viewers 
for that. And you can see Christina's beautiful smile there. You'll have a chance to see that over there too. And I'll include that down in the show notes as I always do. So kind of talk about balance and joy and prioritizing what's important and taking a breath, slowing down. I want to know in life now over the last couple of years and especially now, what do you prioritize? Because you still play professional golf and I'm thinking in your career now, mm-hmm. and well, financially, I think you should be in pretty good shape unless you've actually blown it all. <laughs> I don't think you have. So I'm curious to learn this. I'm sure you play because you love it. You love the connectivity of the people that are around the game is where you are in, in your life right now. So, so yeah, tell us now in the last couple of years, is what is your why? What is your purpose? I guess as the Japanese say, what is your ikigai? What kind of brings it all together for you between what you do for a living, what you're good at, and what brings you joy? It's all golf. It's every aspect of it, whether it's the competition. And when I say competition, it's not me competing against 143 or 155 other players. It's me and that golf course. Right. Golf is an integral part of the fabric that makes me. And I love architecture. I love being able to see someone for who they really are on the golf course, because you can sit there and run your mouth all you want at a business lunch. You cannot hide from me on a golf course when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to how quick your temper is, when it comes to problem-solving skills, when it comes to being humble enough to ask questions or ask for help. Those are things that I have over the years, it's, it's become second nature for me. So going out there and competing with someone or playing with someone, I should say, just kind of observing them and seeing how they react to whether it's an imperfect shot. I mean, I like sit there and yell at every single shot I hit anyway, but a lot of that is just me expelling any negative energy inside of me. I'll hit an imperfect shot and I'm like, it's going to be the sickest up and down that I've ever hit. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> after that, I'm an eternal optimist. So for me, it's the love of the game. I've been doing the same thing ever since I was a 12 year old kid and not many people have the opportunity to say that. I mean, there's so many things about this game that I love, whether it's, you know, the travel and as a result of that, getting to meet new people, uh, immerse myself in different cultures, experience different types of cuisines, fashion, learning a few phrases in a different language. Like I, I probably know a few phrases in, I don't know, maybe almost a dozen languages. Like it's, it's fun and I'm an eternal student. All I want to do is learn and you can learn from anything at any moment in life, wherever you are, you can learn. An article that I read a few years back, it might've been during the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. It basically was titled, try to find awe, try and find something that that puts you in a state of awe every single day. And it could be something as simple as just watching a leaf fall on the ground. It could be something as simple as like feeling of gentle breeze on your body down here at ground level, but looking up and seeing the clouds whiz by and just the reality of like the farther up, the higher elevation you go, the more the wind moves. And then that could lead to the rotational axis of the earth. And then from there, you can think about the cosmos and how insignificant we are, but just trying, trying to find something that puts me in a state of awe every single day. That is something that really does drive me. And life is an adventure. Why, why wouldn't I want to travel all the time? Why wouldn't I want to experience different golf courses? Why wouldn't I want to see what I'm made of? And to do that on a golf course is something that is so special. Wow. I love that. You know what? That was so mic drop. I think we're going to end right there. 
I have lots more questions to ask you. I want to ask about the next phase of your life that I'm sure will evolve around golf. But it seems to me that your connection and love for golf and the people that are around that, that are part of your family, that will always be intertwined with whatever it is that you do. So exciting to learn about the next chapter of your life, which we're going to discuss in a few minutes. So with that, wow, what what a conversation. Didn't know where this conversation was going to go today. I'm so grateful that you opened up and shared your story with us today because it does take courage to do that. What we have talked about here today, if, if that just helps one person that's listening here that's struggling with their own mental health or a friend that they know and they don't know if they should say anything, if they're all right or how to go about doing that, it's okay not to be okay. And that beautiful analogy that your doctor friend then used there is using the automobile and the gas tank. Yes, it's nothing wrong with you. It is definitely your system is either overloaded or it's running on fumes and that's okay and it can be fixed <laughs> and or at least recalibrated to, uh, to get you back up and running and have a meaningful, purposeful, joyful life surrounded by people that care. So on that note, Christina Kim, LPGA Tour professional and so much more than that. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Well, thank you, Colin. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.